This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. Today I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. That was U.S. President Donald Trump yesterday following through, it sounds like, on his threat to pull funding from the World Health Organization. And we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars here. To talk more about this, the potential impact of it, and why this is going on now, we're joined by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Giacchini this morning. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so he's been kind of threatening this. What is the significance of this? Like, why now? Well, I mean, that, that's a good question. Why now, in the middle of a pandemic, are you pulling funding from the organization that is tasked with helping countries around the world, but most notably developing nations, try to get through this virus? But the president is simply doing this because he's shifting the blame from potential shortcomings in his own administration on to somebody else. The president is saying the WHO dropped the ball. They failed to sound the alarms at the beginning of this crisis, despite the fact that they did it weeks before the United States did. Uh, WHO did this at the end of January. president just feels that the world wouldn't be going through this crisis right now if the WHO had acted sooner. And he says that they're simply too friendly with China, took everything at face value from the Chinese government. Also worth noting, the president had said just two weeks ago that he thanked China for being transparent yeah. when it came to their uh, numbers that they were giving out. Yeah, I, but that seems to happen, I've noticed, though, before, right, depending on whether or not the president has just had a conversation with the Chinese leader or not. Yeah, and I mean, look, there's still big trade issues and still, uh, you know, a delicate line to be walked between Washington and, and Beijing, and the president understands that. So when he needs to pat China on the back, he'll do it. And when he needs to go after China for something that he perceives that they're doing wrong, he'll find a scapegoat to take that blame right. so he doesn't have to put the blame solely on the shoulders of right. uh, the Chinese government. Uh, it's, this is what the president does. When there's something that's gone wrong in his administration, we've seen it for three years, it will never be the fault of the president or the people around the president. It will always be somebody else's issue. Right. But the thing is about the World Health Organization, there are some concerns, are there not, about the fact that it did take too long to declare this a pandemic? And did they push China hard enough for more information on it? Yes, there are questions that are being asked about the WHO and how they interacted with China. But we also have to remember that China is not an easy country to work with. You know, it it is difficult and tough as nails oftentimes to get the full picture or even the real picture from China. So there's only so far that you can push before China may push back and say, well, everybody out. They let the World health organization in the who was able to get the information that they were able to get maybe they were too lenient on it maybe they went early enough those are what investigations are going to kind of look at according to what the president is saying about these investigations into the who but at the end of the day the last two months or the last two and a half months of this crisis the world health organization really has been pushing out uh, information medication money testing abilities to countries around the world to try and cope with this and because of that the numbers are much lower than what they would have been with zero help. Okay. And so also, was this a bit of deflection as well? Because the day before, the president got into a bit of a fight with governors around the United States, and governors were not happy about that. 
No, and I mean, look, it's it's the blame game again. If the issue is, you know, a crisis that is crippling the U.S. economy, the president's not going to take responsibility for that, despite the fact that he was not really doing much to deal with this in February. So he left governors uh, to deal with this on their own. Governors have now done that. They've put these stay-at-home orders in place. They're going to be in place in some places until June. president wants the country to reopen up in May. Uh, and governors are saying, we need to do this on our own time. We need to ensure that our people are going to be safe if we're going to restart this economy. The president president just wants to snap his fingers and it goes. Uh, and that's where this back and forth, you know, has come into the picture because states are sovereign entities in the United States and governors get final control over when and how and if their economies will open. And that's what sparred this whole fight. Okay. And what's the deal with the checks and the name on the checks? What's happening with that? Well, I mean, look, the checks are, are coming out. The president wanted his name to be on checks originally to call these Trump checks to say that it was his administration that was getting the ball rolling again. But there have been issues from day one when it comes to getting this funding out. We're hearing stories now that people are getting checks deposited into their bank accounts and it's being all messed up and somebody who was supposed to get a $1,200 check is opening up their account and seeing you know a, a deposit of $8.5 million or $3.5 million. Nice. Uh, this just goes to show that it's it's been a it's been a hard rollout for uh, this administration to get things right and even when they're trying to get things right they're sometimes making the two right yeah well i'm sure that guy was pretty happy for a brief shining moment right seeing his actual bank balance there it was a couple there there have been numerous cases of, really? of people getting millions of dollars in the bank obviously they're getting it the, the government's getting it back these are bank issues but this is what happens in a crisis like this you try to roll things out really quickly and there are big mistakes that can be made right but i guess i got to get that money into uh people's bank accounts because that's not looking good right now. Okay, thank you very much for that, Reggie. Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Some stats that are out this morning actually just released. Uh, For instance, when it comes to uh, retail sales in the United States, they dropped by 8.7% in the month of March alone. That is a record amount. That's the most that they have ever seen uh, retail spending fall in one month before This gives you an idea of how much people have uh, pulled back on spending amid everything that's going on. And listen, those numbers definitely would be reflected, I think, similarly here in Canada as well. I mean, what are we spending money on other than groceries at this point, right? Not gas, not commuting, not lunches, not dinners, not movies, not clothes, uh, you know, not going to the mall, not doing anything like that. So yeah, I would imagine those numbers are similar. Uh, Speaking of which, though, StatsCan has released some preliminary numbers uh, for Canada as well, GDP declining about 9% in the month of March. And that is because that's when we saw those shutdowns starting right across the country. Uh, That is the largest one-month decline in GDP since at least 1961, according to StatsCam. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the real estate market of Greater Vancouver seemed to be on the verge of having a pretty busy spring before COVID-19 and this whole lockdown happened. Things have been kind of frozen since then, as you might imagine. It's kind of hard for anybody to think about, uh, you know, actually investing in a new home or moving during this whole situation. So we thought, let's take a look at some predictions for the market. Our real estate giant Royal LePage has just released their house price survey and market survey forecast. So we thought, let's ask one of the local brokers to walk us through that. Adil Danani joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Adil. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Now, would you agree that the spring had been looking pretty good until this whole situation erupted? Yes, most definitely. The first, I would say, two and a half months of 2020 were shaping up to be 
um, you know, an excellent, well, well, they were actually very good months when you were comparing them to volume and, and the price growth from 2019. So year over year, they were performing very well. And we were anticipating there to be an extremely busy spring. What we were seeing in the month of February and, and early parts of March was, in fact, multiple offers on really well-priced homes. And I think that was partly in due to the fact that, um, um, you know, the, the federal stress, stress, stress test was reduced um, and we had uh, lower mortgage borrowing rates. So I think there was a confluence of factors there that was leading to um, a more active spring. Okay, so it was looking good. Then all this happens. How would you describe the market right now? So I'll give you a quick snapshot of the first two weeks pre-COVID and then post-COVID activity. So uh, we had a little under about 136 transactions per day um, for the first uh, 14 days of March. And then if you look at the last two weeks of March, that went down to about 93 transactions per day. So there was still activity and there were still transactions being done, um, but obviously uh, transactions were down 40%. And, th- that was, and those were the numbers for March. And naturally, as you know, the, um, the quarantine um, was encouraged uh, in British Columbia, um, fewer home buyers were out there you know, trying to buy a home. The only folks that were actually out there actively looking were folks who absolutely, absolutely needed to buy. So for example... In the month of March, if you had sold your home right. you know, pre-COVID, you needed a place to go. You need a place to live. Um, so you're out there trying to secure a, a residence. Um, if you're relocating, and you know we do a lot of relocation work at Royal Page, we had folks moving here from who had sold their home out east and who had moved here from a, from a job perspective and still had that job stability. They needed a home to go. So there were still those the like absolute. Those, those those necessities that needed to need to take place, and then the folks that were buying but didn't need to buy right away, they're kind of hitting the pause button. Um, they want the dust to settle, and then they want to determine whether they're going to get back into the market or not. But I, I feel like when we do come out of this, I do believe the the market will come back um, reasonably strong. Okay, what are prices like though right now? Yeah, so great question. So we are not seeing any changes to prices right now. Um, I think if this pandemic was to, um, you know, extend itself for another three, four or five months, there's naturally going to be a handful of sellers who, who need to sell their homes. And if they're not getting, you know, the bid or an offer at the prices that they're at the prices they're asking, they're going to have to adjust their prices to where buyers feel there's value. Right. Right. Um, naturally when you have a lot of uncertainty, um, there's going to be buyers out there that are looking for a quote-unquote a deal, right? Um, but if you have a handful of homes trade at a deal, it doesn't necessarily mean the market has has changed um, or prices are, 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 are free-falling because what we're finding now is this is very different from like, for example, I, I, I was actively working during the 2008 um, you know, um, yeah. uh, global financial crisis. And that was an extended period um, of, of uncertainty. But I think with the pandemic, we, we know that, one, the curve is going to be flattened. And at, in British Columbia, we've done a tremendous job of, of flattening that curve. And number two, there's going to be, a, there's going to be um, you know, um, a solution to this pandemic at some point, whether that's a vac- in the form of a vaccine. So there is an end game here. 
Right. And let's talk a little bit more about prices. You mentioned that there had been, prior to this happening, there was lots of activity, there were multiple offers. And I heard that anecdotally as well from people. And do you think, was that a reflection of price? Because I felt like people were finally pricing things in an area that everybody agreed that, yeah, okay, that's worth it. Most definitely. Um, Whenever you intelligently price a home reflective of market changes, you're going to get activity. Even today, uh, Simi, if you were to list a home, uh, and we have a prime example. We just sold a home um, less than say, 12 days ago in Burnaby, and it was priced uh, very competitively, and, uh, and we were able to sell it um, you know, within seven days on market. So uh, the first three months of this year, first two and a half months of this year, yeah, most definitely I think sellers, there's always that transitional period, right, where yeah. sellers are um, perhaps there's a bit of a pushback on, um, on, on wanting to try a certain price and then, then realizing that the market's not quite there to support that price, then they'll adjust, make price adjustments and, you know, and eventually have to sell. But there's also this conversation we're having with some clients, Simi, where they don't need to sell. Like there's not a, a, a panic to move their homes, to sell their homes. Right. And so what they're going to do, they're just going to sit this out. They're going to take their homes off the market. We've had a handful of people, one just from a, from a health and safety perspective, um, prefer not to have their homes listed during this time, um, which is great. We, you know, we're obviously supporting that. We're here to we're here to serve our clients in the, in the broader communities. And if you don't need to sell your home, we're encouraging you not to. And, and we've removed a handful of listings off the market. Oh, really? So some people have just said, "Hey, listen, this is not the time." Most definitely, yeah. And that's some of the counsel we've given folks too. Like naturally, we have uh, you know showing protocols in place. We've been deemed an essential service, um, and so we are here. Uh, to work and to serve, but um, but if you don't need to sell your home, uh, it's not an absolute necessity. Um, then yeah, some folks have removed their homes off the market. Okay, so then Adele, from what I'm hearing from you, then it's a this is a temporary situation. Everybody's kind of in a holding pattern, but you think the market will bounce back? It feels that way. Like I, you know, I'm always have an underlying uh, optimism to my tone, but um, um, I Real think that people usually it, do that, though. By the way, <laughs> naturally, yes. I think it's in our DNA. Yes. Uh, but I think if I was to take a practical, you know, um, uh, real approach to this, um, I think that even it, so, I believe this is going to this is going to continue naturally for, for for a bit more time here. When the when the data points come out for April, they're not going to look good, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going to look good because people are not trading. We're encouraging people not to sell homes if they don't have to at this point, and a lot of buyers have hit the brakes in terms of their search. So. We're going to see sales probably come off 50 plus percent, maybe even more from the data points that were released in March. Um, and so I think the longer this continues, you're going to see that that take place. But I do believe just if you look at the underlying supports of the market, the, the, the swiftness and the aggressiveness of the Bank of Canada, you know, um, right. reducing their um, prime rate or their lending rates. You've got the banks also reducing mortgage rates. You've got fiscal stimulus from the government level. Uh, they move very aggressively, and I feel like that's going to support the market going forward. Um, and I think that's a very real approach. Um, I don't think we're going to see this V-shaped recovery by any means in, re- in the real estate market. But I do believe buyers will come back, okay. and we will start seeing more transactions. Adil, thanks so much for your time. 
My, my pleasure, Simi. Have a great rest of your day. You too. That's Adil Danani, who's a Royal LePage broker, talking about their uh, house price survey and market survey forecast that just got released. Uh, they do believe the market is going to bounce back, but no shortage of people who decided, oh, I'm just going to take my house off the market for now. If you want to uh, share your thoughts on that, you can email me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about uh, somebody, people who are making the best of things. Uh, we like stories like that right now. Now, in downtown Vancouver, if you've been down here at all recently or seen any pictures, then you know there's a lot of boarded up storefronts. It's not attractive. In fact, it's a little scary to see, right? I think it, it kind of heightens people's anxiety about what's happening here. Uh, so the Gastown Business Association and a group of local artists decided to team up to bring a little beauty back to their neighborhood. So our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Wally Wargolette, owner of Dutil Denim, and one of the executive members of the Gastown Business Improvement Association. So is it safe to assume that Yours is unfortunately probably one of the businesses in Gastown that has plywood boards up over the windows right now. Yes, unfortunately, uh, we are one of the businesses that have closed our doors for right now due to COVID-19. And we do have some plywood on the on the windows to uh, protect them against breakage. But we were excited when this program started and we could get some beautiful artwork put out there. So the vibrancy of our neighborhood can continue during this uh, downturn. So for anyone who's otherwise unfamiliar with the project, can you explain what's been happening to those boards of plywood that are over store windows right now? Yeah, so this actually started Kim at Kim Prince uh, down in, in Gastown. She also had to board up her windows and had the idea of, you know, maybe there's a way to turn a negative into a positive and had a call up to some artists who put some beautiful pieces of art up, really congratulating and thanking all of the first responders and and healthcare workers, and that kind of just grew. So um, the executive director, um, Stephanie Schultz, put a call out to other businesses in the neighborhood and said, would anyone else be you know, willing to give their storefront windows up to have some uh, artwork created? And that right now we have over 20 businesses, 35 pieces of art. Uh, some of it has been dedicated to the healthcare workers and the leaders of, of that but also some other amazing um, murals have been put up uh, as well. An art storefront, we have both a beautiful abstract piece of art and then um, also a a message about the importance of of social distancing at this time. Now, a lot of people, of course, won't be able to make it down to Gastown right now to check check out this project, but there's something kind of cool that you guys are doing to make this available to the public, right? That's exactly correct. So the guesttown.org website has called Murals of Gratitude. So we've had some photographers come down, take some beautiful photos of this amazing artwork. And so if you um, don't have access to Gastown right now, you still can see the beauty that has been created in our neighborhood by going out to guesttown.org. This sounds like a really great example of small businesses, even in the toughest of times, coming together to make their neighborhood a better place. Well, that's really, really what it is. I think that, at least from from my perspective, Gaston has such an amazing vibrancy and and has so many still a very independent business ownership. You know, there's not a lot of bigger chains in our neighborhood, and so there are a lot of individuals. This is their daily passion, right? And in our neighborhood, is a passion to many folks. And when this COVID-19 hit and we had to close our businesses, it certainly was the negative, but 
I think the spirit of our neighborhood really kind of rose to the occasion here. And again, we trying to t- turn a negative into a, a positive and to bring that vibrancy back to Gastown. And I'm very proud of, of what we've been able to accomplish here. It really is such a positive twist on what is normally a, a pretty negative story. How about for you guys, for your business? How are you holding up? Well, it's tough. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, we have locations in uh, Toronto, Calgary, and also here in in Vancouver. And uh, the one thing that I think has helped us a little bit is we do have an online presence. And uh, while that is certainly not enough to really sustain uh, all three of those locations, it has helped us. And we're really hoping that that will help us gap this time for, you know, for us. Even though the brick and mortars are closed, we're, we're doing our best to get jeans out to those who need them. Well, I could certainly use a pair myself. I was noticing a hole starting to form in my jeans the other day. (laughs) Yes, well, we can take care of that for you, definitely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I look forward to checking out the mural project online and getting a new pair of jeans. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, thanks for the the chat today. We appreciate your, you know, even, you know, folks like yourself in the news who are bringing the story out to the greater public. We, We appreciate that because there is so much negativity going on right now and, and I think we're all feeling a little uneasy. And I think positive news stories like this is exactly what we all need to hear right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, what parent out there right now isn't looking for something different and fun to do with the kids? And if you could do it via computer, well, then even better, right? And remember how much excitement you had as a kid when you got to tour the local fire hall? Well, the North Vancouver Fire Department is trying to help you out with both of those things right now. You can't come in person, but they do have a remedy for that. Assistant Fire Chief Mike Danks joins me now to talk about what it is that they're doing. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show this morning. Well, thanks for coming up with this idea. And how did you guys come up with this idea? Yeah, this was an idea that was brought up by the crews and uh, it was discussed. And it's a very unusual, unprecedented time right now that we can't have people at the fire hall. So we were trying to find ways um, that we could still share the inner workings of the department with our community. And this seemed like a really good idea. Okay, so how does it work? Yeah, so basically it starts out by just showing the outside of the fire hall, um, welcoming the children and thanking them for coming and, and goes through basically our, our standard tour that we do, but it actually gets uh, into the vehicles, uh, shows some of the equipment that's on the vehicles, and then it talks about the equipment that we wear when we go to a, a structure fire call or to a motor vehicle accident. And the idea with that is just to really um, get the kids used to seeing us in this different gear and, and get them comfortable with that. And then it also goes into the personal protective equipment that we wear when we go to uh, potential COVID calls. And that gear is a bit more involved and looks a bit more intimidating. And again, it's really just to, to get the children and the community members uh, comfortable with the way that we're looking. That's interesting. Okay, so tell me about that. Like, how do you make the decision to wear the personal protective equipment? Do you have to hear the symptoms of, of the person that you're attending to first? Absolutely. So that's something that, that happens through 911, through the dispatchers. And then uh, we also have a doorway assessment that we go through when we get to a residence or any call that we go to. And and you get the background information on the person, and, and that dictates the level of personal protective equipment that you're going to wear for your crews. And we really try to limit the amount of people also that are exposed on those calls. 
So it, would you say, Mike, then these are, you put this tour together based on kind of the most popular questions or the most commonly asked questions that kids want to know about? Yeah, absolutely. And and to be quite honest, there's a lot of adults out there um, that are interested <laughs> as well. And I think for the crews, this was a bit of a break for them. It was something fun for them to do. And it's, again, we don't do a lot of filming at the hall. So this was a, a neat thing for them. And I know there was a small blooper reel that they got a lot of laughs oh, out of. Fantastic. Also. Has yeah. it been has it been stressful for firefighters as well? Like how have how have you guys managed that? I think we're doing well. We do regular check-ins with our members. Um, but I think, you know, on a broader level it's really important for, for everyone to check in with their loved ones and, and neighbors and friends. And this is a stressful time for everyone and this is a time we really need to pull together as a community and look out for each other. All right. So are people taking you up on this? How many people have checked out the virtual tour? Yeah, we've had uh, a lot of people checking it out, thanks to um, media such as yourself giving us some exposure. So we've had thousands of people that have uh, gone through the tour, and um, hopefully that will continue. Okay, so where can people find it? Yeah, so it's on our Facebook site. Um, We have it up on Instagram, and there's a link on our Twitter as well. So we're NVC Fire on Instagram and at NVCFD on uh, Facebook. Okay, well, I'm definitely going to check this one out myself. Uh, when it comes to showing people what's inside the truck, which is what fascinates me, what is the most popular question that you get about that? Um, I think the air packs are, are pretty interesting for people. They're, um, they're built into our seats, so we can put them on quite quickly and we can still do up our seatbelts to be safe. You'd be surprised, but a lot of people like the flashlights. We also have uh, the thermal imaging camera. It's on the trucks as well. And another thing that we wear that people really seem to like is is the headsets. And that's just to obviously dampen the noise inside the vehicle and, and it allows us to communicate as well. Well, that's cool stuff. See, I'm going to check this out. Mike, thanks so much. Thanks for having us on. Well, good luck. It's Mike Danks, Assistant Fire Chief Operations for the North Vancouver Fire Department. And they have put up a virtual tour so that anybody, kids in particular, though, can uh, see what really goes on behind the scenes at the fire hall. So you'll find them on their Instagram page or on Facebook, uh, where the kids can just sit down and see everything that is going on there at the fire hall. And it sounds fascinating. This is Mornings with Simi. If you own a small business and are struggling to pay the bills or pay your staff, we launched the Canada Emergency Business Account. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just heading into the weekend, so a few days back. But that money for businesses isn't necessarily getting to every business that needs it. Now, that is according to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. So we thought, let's talk more about this, including the concerns that some small businesses aren't eligible for that governmental support. They've got a new report out about that. So joining us now is Dan Kelly, the CFIB President and CEO. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Now, tell me about this report that's out today. What did you take a look at? Well, we asked our members over the weekend uh, as to how many of them are able to use some of the government programs that have been that have been issued. Uh, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy—that's the seventy-five percent wage support that employers are eligible to, to get—as well as this business loan. Uh, the the SEBA program, as it's called, the Canada Emergency Business Account, is a really good one. It will help some businesses out uh, considerably, but the test is that you have to have fifty to fifty thousand to uh, to a million dollars in payroll. 
What we found is that about a quarter of our members, uh, actually it was just over 20%, uh, said that they were not eligible to collect and get this, this, uh, this emergency loan because they're too small. They don't have $50,000 in payroll. And while that might surprise some of your listeners because they think, well, you know, could you really have a business without even 50 grand in, in payroll? You got to remember that for business owners, they often pay themselves with dividends. Uh, so they don't pay a salary. And therefore, their, their own, if, if you've got a husband and wife, a mom and pop shop, their income that they take personally would not be included in the calculation. So there are tons of businesses, very small ones, micro-sized businesses and sole proprietors that are out there uh, that they're just not qualifying. Your local hair salon and nail salon are unlikely to qualify for that. The tattoo parlor unlikely to qualify for that too. These are businesses that have been, in many provinces, been in order to shut down 100% and are not eligible for the basic loans that uh, that many other businesses can, and that's unfair. And now, is that something that you, do you think you have the ear of government on this? Is somebody listening? You know, I, I think they are. This, this happened with the wage subsidy. The government announced the program and, and then announced further changes, opening it up to more businesses. They, we demonstrated where the shoe was pinching, where, how many businesses were not going to be helped by it. And then they have three rounds of changes that have helped out. We're hoping the same will occur with these, this emergency business account. The really important feature of it for, for small business owners is that it's interest-free. You can borrow up to $40,000, not have to pay any interest while you have it, and 10000 of the loan is forgivable. And that's super important because those same businesses that I mentioned, the nail salon, hair right. salon, they're shut down. They, they still have to pay the rent on their property and all the bills, Yet they have no income. So having this loan that gives them 10000 free, if you pay it back in time, really will be a, a, a huge godsend to a lot of very, very small businesses. Now, how are small business owners feeling right now in terms of the long-term health of their businesses? It is quite worrisome. Uh, we've been testing this. We've done major surveys of our 110,000 members each weekend for the past four weeks. And we are at the point now, as this is starting to, to drag on, uh, now we're into a, the second month of, of essentially a shutdown of the economy, where 80% of small and medium-sized businesses across Canada are closed, uh, either p- completely closed or largely closed. And of them, a, a full half of businesses, 51%, say that if the current restrictions continue until the end of May, they are worried that they may close permanently. That's half of the business community. Can you imagine, uh, you know, we've, we've all chosen to live in neighborhoods that we're happy, often have terrific little independent shops and restaurants that we love. Imagine if this goes on uh, another month and a half that we may see half of those businesses gone, gone forever. And all the jobs that, that they create and all of the community groups that they support will suffer as a result. And, and, and we just can't let that happen. And that's why these kinds of supports are so important. We need more provincial support, uh, including the British Columbia, to help offset rent. Saskatchewan just moved and, and is offering every business that has shut down a $5,000 one-time grant. Those are the kinds of measures we need to see replicated in British Columbia and elsewhere. Now, is that when you talk about businesses that may not reopen, is that right across the board, every type of business? Or is it like retail? Or is it food and beverage? What is it? That, that 51% is an aggregate of all, all sectors of the economy. In some, it is much higher. The ones, though, that are most hard hit are those in the service economy. 
personal services, of course, uh, retailers, uh, restaurants. Those are the ones that, that took the earliest hit. Anything connected to the tourism industry, obviously, is deeply hard hit. So hospitality in general, including hotels. Um, many of them have almost no income coming in. Or, you know, in the case of personal services, where there's physical touch involved, like a, a hair salon, a chiropractor's office, they have <laughs> a physiotherapist. There is no possible way for them to have any income at this particular point in time. Uh, you know, you're not going to be able right. to to deliver a, a nail appointment online. And so you're, you know, you're really, really struggling to get by, and we need to make sure that some of these businesses make it. I wonder as well, Dan, though, like with some businesses like the nail salons or the hair salons or whatever the case may be, you would expect that as soon as they're allowed to reopen, they'll be busy again, right? There's a lot of people who haven't gotten that haircut or haven't had any grooming done or anything like that. <laughs> But You're some right. gonna be, they'll be busy, gonna, gonna be busy. <laughs> right? But, but some of them won't be. Like I'm wondering about more of the tourism sectors, the hotels, yeah. like travel. Like, aren't there certain areas that we should kind of be focusing on? Is probably won't be bouncing back as fast as others. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, tourism will 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 be very hard hit, and many businesses are worried not just about what's happening during the emergency phase of COVID, but what's going to happen immediately afterward. How long is the tail effect going to be? And for tourism in particular, so germane to, to British Columbia, how how long is it going to be before people are back on cruise ships or, or overseas tourists coming to uh, to visit our beautiful beautiful places across Canada? It's going to take a bit, I would imagine, and even even tourists from the U.S. or or other Canadians may be reluctant to move terribly far from home um, in the immediate aftermath of this. So. So we have to worry about them. But even those service businesses that are entirely shut down, who will see customers come back because they need them, there's only so much you can do. You can't cut hair 24 hours a day. True. You're going to be busy, but but capacity is going to mean that you're you're not going to be able to reap the benefits of it for a while. It's true, and you can't. It's not like you can suddenly start charging more either, right? You can't can't charge. You may not be able to charge more, and you can't cut two heads of hair at the same time. That is so true, Dan. Thanks so much for the insights. And- Anytime at all. That is Dan Kelly, the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, talking about some surveys that they've done that show only about half of the small business owners that they surveyed are confident that their business will survive until the end of May if the current conditions last. Uh, end of May is, you know, feels like a long ways away right now, six weeks, but imagine where we were six weeks ago. It's only been a, we've been a month in this lockdown, and I know it feels like forever already. So how are businesses going to last? until the end of May. But that issue of the hair salons, too, got me thinking, so when these lockdowns do start to get lifted bit by bit, what's the first thing that you want to do? Do you want to make that appointment at the hair salon? Do you want to go for a beer on the patio somewhere? Like, what is that first thing that you really want to do when this is all over with, or at least partially over with, putting us on the right track? Email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been a couple of weeks now since we learned that a safe drug supply had been approved for BC in an effort to try to protect uh, drug users because, of course, we are still in a public health emergency from four years ago, the overdose crisis. In fact, yesterday marked the exact four-year anniversary of the declaration of that public health emergency. So we wanted to know... Is the safe drug supply, has that policy been implemented? How has it been going? So joining us now, Judy Darcy, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions and MLA for New Westminster. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you so much for your interest in me. Good to be on your show. I'm very curious about how this works. So is the safe drug supply policy being implemented? It is, absolutely. I mean, we, we acted at the first uh, moment that we possibly could. The federal government uh, uh, allowed several weeks ago exemptions under the Controlled Substances Act. They could take effect uh, on March the 25th. And so on March the 25th, we issued provincial guidelines uh, to govern safe prescription medications in this COVID-19 um, unprecedented situation and it is two public health emergencies and I think it's critically important that while we are dealing with a COVID-19 pandemic we still continue to stare down that other public health emergency we were making finally finally the death toll was beginning to come down not quickly enough we had a long way to go but beginning to come down and now um, now people uh, who use drugs, people who are struggling with addiction are at great risk. So we have been rolling these out very quickly through um, the, you know, the doctors of BC, through nurses and nurse practitioners, because the, it, it's critical that prescribers, first and foremost, know about it, the ones who can prescribe safe prescription medication, critical for pharmacists to understand it, to understand it critical for people who work in supportive housing, who work in places like the downtown east side and the social agencies there, the health authorities. Um, and I'm really, really excited to say that the BC Centre on Substance Use, who is really the body that drafted these guidelines with a whole team of people, that they had 400 prescribers on a webinar uh, within about a week of when the guidelines were issued. So that's really important because it needs to get down to the front line. And the front line there is both uh, the people who prescribe as well as the people who need safe prescription drugs as an alternative to the poison drug supply. So what is the criteria then for somebody uh, to use this program and how does, how does it work then? Do they just walk into any clinic to get this? No, they don't. No, these these drugs need to be, these prescriptions need to be prescribed by a doctor or a nurse practitioner. Um, we, I mean, basically people are at risk in several ways. If you are already on safe prescription meds, and there are significantly more people who are, because we've done a really big push on that in the last few years. Um, if you're already on safe prescription meds right now, you have to go to a pharmacy every day or almost every day. That's not about you can't uh, respect physical distancing when you go to a pharmacy every day. And if you are living in really crowded circumstances or if you're homeless or living in poverty, again, really hard to physically distance. So those folks are at great risk unless there was some change in the, in the rules and the federal government has allowed those to take place. So um, it means, for instance, that pharmacists can extend prescriptions. They can issue verbal orders to refill prescriptions. They can have prescriptions delivered to somebody's home. Uh, they can give longer carries, of like longer prescriptions, so people don't have to come to the clinic as often, and, and things like that, which are really right. important so that people can... Uh, physically distanced as well as not being at risk of overdose. Do you also hope to reach people, I guess, new to the healthcare system, like people who are not familiar yet and think, okay, maybe this can help me? Is this a way to draw more people in to help them? I hope that that's the case. Absolutely. Um, I hope that, uh, you know, we know that there are more people who are now 
living in isolation, right, even more than before. And we know that the majority of people who died of drug overdoses in the last few years are using drugs alone, often at home. Um, and that's when they're at the greatest risk. So them, so for people to be able to get on safe prescription medications um, is, it can only be a good thing because it, it enables people to deal with those symptoms of withdrawal, to start to stabilize their lives, to start to get healthy and to rebuild their lives. So uh, we're talking both about, I mean, people who use drugs today are at risk both of COVID-19 right. and of overdose. So there is that dual risk. And we're hoping to tackle both of them. We need to tackle both of them. So is, can this be for any drug? And what are the limits on this? How, how does this program work to limit the intake as well? Well, there aren't limits that are set on it, except the except you know not all doctors in the province, not all nurse practitioners have any have training in addiction medicine, and that's why the training that the BC Center on Substance Use is doing is so so important um, because we 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 want to see we want to get to a place where addiction issues are treated as part of healthcare. You know, we still too too much look at. Um, addiction as a moral issue or as a character issue. We want this to be integrated into primary care, into the the care that your physician or your nurse practitioner provides to you. So that's why such aggressive work and an aggressive timeline has gone into really trying to right. get the word out by all possible means across the province. So then the doctors and nurse practitioners have to take this training first, this webinar first, before then participating in this? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Because, uh, you know, doctors have, uh, they've had various types of specialists. If you're in family practice, you know a little bit about addictions, but not a lot. And these are, these are new guidelines. They haven't existed before. And they set out various types of drugs that people now use and what the alternative prescription medications are that can help them to deal with the symptoms of withdrawal. Because if people go into withdrawal, that can be very, very serious medically, um, very serious, uh, you know, physically, medically can result in hospitalization. So we also need to help to support people um, and to prevent very serious medical withdrawal that can have serious consequences. Well, you know what, we would love to follow along with this. So if you could come back in a couple of weeks and update us, that would be great. I would be very, very happy to do that. I mean, there are bound to be bumps in the road. Uh, There always are with something new like this, but we are working flat out to make it happen. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for your interest, Simi. That's Judy Darcy, Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. And I am so curious about this, how this is working. Ever since, you know, we learned that BC had been allowed by the federal government in this emergency situation to provide a safe drug supply. So we are going to keep checking back on that. Sounds like they're still in the very early stages of getting this thing rolled out. But we do want to know more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we have a few minutes here to tell you about another great idea for you to check out with your family because the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra would always also like to help you out at home. Joining us now is the VSO President Angela Elster to talk about what it is that they are doing. Good morning, Angela. Good morning, Simi. How are you today? I am good. Thank you. So tell me, what has the VSO been up to right now? Tough times for you as well. Well, it's tough times for everyone, isn't it? And yeah. a time when social distancing means we need to stay apart from one another. We at the VSO are using the power of music to connect with one another and to connect with the community. 
All right. And the way in which we're doing that, our last performance was actually March 15th, and it was the end of our Beethoven Festival, and we were able to live stream Beethoven Symphony Number no. 6, and shortly thereafter, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5. This time has also allowed the musicians and our staff to get together and to really reach into their creative potential. And uh, we're creating a number of virtual um, projects. We have, we'll be launching a virtual YouTube channel and everyone can check us out at vancouversymphony.ca. We are so excited about the expanded reach these digital projects are offering us, um, the live streaming what meant we were able to get into the homes of 120,000 people, That's which great. is, of course, more than a normal theater can hold. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> you could say then that the VSO was taking this opportunity to maybe find some some new people who appreciate the VSO out there. Absolutely. I mean, our priority is to allow the power of music to engage. and And, you know, this is a scary time for the world, and music has this wonderful ability to to soothe the soul and to elevate the soul. So it is an opportunity, but it's also a responsibility that we take seriously. And our loyal ticket purchasers are so grateful that they have this opportunity to connect with their beloved symphony. Now, you're launching the VSO at Home series. So what does that involve? What can we expect? That's really an interesting question because, as I said, we're reaching into our creative powers and creating new ideas. Obviously, it goes without saying that the entire symphony cannot get together to rehearse or perform at this particular point in time. So it's what can the musicians do from their homes? Um, How can small ensembles perhaps come together as duos uh, sitting, of course, or standing um, with the appropriate social distancing, or even, you know, playing ensembles, different parts with a click track from their own home. So we're investigating all of that. We're also looking into our archives to see what we do have recorded that we might reinvent and recreate in this time of such change. Um, You know, we're all feeling it. I do love the creativity there, too. And what about keeping kids engaged, Angela? I know that the kids program at the VSO was a very important one. Yes, there are two streams to our education programs. Our Connects program, which is our public school program servicing 60,000 students in the Lower Mainland um, annually, um, is compiling a suite of education um, curriculum um, for schools, uh, because as you know, public school teachers are teaching from their homes right now, Mm -hmm. which is brand new. So we're trying to create as much curriculum for them and many projects. Um, I know um, our maestro Otto Tausk has already completed Meet the Maestro from his home in the Netherlands for us. So it's going to be a wide range of digital offerings. And then, as you know, the VSO also has its own school of music where we teach children as young as six months old to adults into their um, into their winter years. And um, we have, in the you know space of very few days, um, managed to transform all of those programs onto yeah. online. So individual lessons, group lessons, oh, our mini music makers now has students from all across Canada and around the world. I love it. Okay, very quickly, what's that website again? 
uh, it's vancouversymphony.ca and we look forward to talking with you then and and we'll update every day love it thanks angela Thank you. Bye for now. That is the president of the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, Angela Elster, talking about all the different things the VSO is doing to keep people engaged at this time. They're used to, um, you know, performing in front of you know, a couple thousand people at the Orpheum, but now you're talking about 100,000 people available, available to them on YouTube. Bit of a difference audience, and they are doing a great job with that. You can check them out online uh, and check out all the different programs that they've got going on.